thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Station. Seven minutes after 10 o'clock. Welcome to the second hour of the Seabus Makaza Show on Cape Talk and 702 with me, Gogs and Shungum. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, we speak to director Aliki Saragas, who's done a new documentary film looking at the women of Marigana and also their experiences five years after Marigana was in uh, the spotlight. We'll be speaking to her. And then coming up a little bit later on in the show, we'll be speaking, uh, we'll be talking sex with Dr. Shingai, and uh, they are concerned concerns about male uh, fertility and health. Uh, new research uh, raising some concerns um, about uh, uh, men in America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, but also raising questions about other parts of the world. So we'll be speaking to uh, Dr. Shingai about that. But it is a Friday, which means we talk science with Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Of course, if you have a question for the Naked Scientist, we take your call on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. You can drop us an SMS on 31702 and 31567. Chris, good morning. Good morning. So there's been a, a bit of concern or research showing that um, nighttime light pollution is impacting pollination rates, which means there are issues for um, uh, plant uh, fruit yields. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the amount of light which is being cast all over the world as light pollution is increasing at the rate of about 6% per year. That's a huge rate of growth. And what no one has actually asked for some bizarre reason is well how is this affecting animals yes they've looked at certain animals but they haven't ever looked at the question of the animals that do pollination because believe it or not it's not just bees that buzz around during the daytime that pollinate plants as soon as the sun goes down this what's dubbed a nocturnal army of insects bugs moths come out and they visit flowers and they carry pollen around. Mm-hmm. So there's a very interesting paper it's in the journal Nature this week by researchers at the University of Bern. This is Ava Knopp and her colleagues. What they did was to take a meadow and they had seven sites in this meadow which they left completely unlit, another seven sites which were directly comparable and had never previously been exposed to any kind of illumination. They put a, a mobile street light in each of those places mm-hmm. and then they divided it up into a grid pattern or went along with a net and they collected all of the pollinating insects uh, in each of these places and compared them. And what they found is that in areas that were illuminated, there was a 62% reduction in pollinator visits. And when they collected fruits produced by some of the plants growing in the meadows, those growing in areas that were lit at night had a 13% reduction in the fruit yield from those plants. Now, they don't know why this is. The, the study, which is in Nature this week, did not set out to solve the problem of why they see this effect 
they merely wanted to do a first-in-kind study to establish that there is an effect, that this is a serious effect, and we need to worry about it given the rate of growth of light pollution. Mm. So an area like cities, as cities get bigger and bigger, and also mm. as we light them better, but for safety, for security issues, for visibility, um, so are we then seeing uh, the rates of pollination in, in places like cities declining? Or have those numbers always been quite low because of the rate of or the amount of nighttime light? Well, obviously, that's outside the scope of this study, which looked at a meadow area which wasn't previously affected by light pollution. Mm. A city does have a lot of light pollution. It has other kinds of pollution as well, but it does have green open spaces. And uh, therefore, the biodiversity of those green open spaces, based on what this study shows, may already have been hit or the productivity of those areas may be lower owing to the effect that, the, the effect that there is this impact of, of light. But what it says is we need to be more cautious. We can't just keep invading the night without illuminations. We can't just keep building all over green virgin rainforest and things and putting loads of lights in there because we will be directly denting nature and that the value value of pollination. It seems trivial, but actually you can attach a financial value to this because we know how much food costs, we know how much the world needs to eat, and we therefore know how much it costs to feed the world. And if you ask, well, how much of a contribution to the fruit yields and the grain yields that, that we circulate, we give to it to everyone around the world, how, how much therefore is attributable to pollination? It's between three and four hundred billion US dollars in productivity terms every year. It's a huge contribution that these animals make mm. and they do it at the moment for free and if we're potentially eroding their ability to do that by just spending energy illuminating a patch of ground that may not need to be illuminated we're, we're directly hitting ourselves in the pocket and in the stomach. Aha. Uh -huh. Taking your calls for The Naked Scientist this week on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. Lots of questions on SMS as well on 31567 and 31702. We will get to those. But uh, we've got Angelo in Athlone. Good morning. Good morning, ma'am. Um, I would just like to throw a spin and I'd like to hear The, the Naked Scientist uh, theory on the spin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so insects that pollinate during the night would have evolved to grow and so they tune their metabolism it may be that the impact of this 24 7 illumination on the plant in some way changes the plant behavior and the plant behavior then changes its its interaction with its pollinators at the moment we don't know but it's certainly something they'll be looking at in a follow-up study thank you so much sir that was very interesting Thank you very much. That's Angelo in Athlone, 14 after 10 o'clock, still discussing science, asking your questions or hearing your questions for Chris on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702 when we come back. Hello, Nick. Hello. Yes. Yes, hello. Hi. Your question. Um, yeah, hi, Chris. Um, thanks for a great program. Um, just something that's always troubled me, you were talking about evolution uh, earlier, um, with evolution, can you, have you ever heard someone uh, give a reason of why a species ever became male and female? Obviously, when you started with uh, one cell amoeba and they would divide and then uh, develop a hard shell to protect themselves and, say, evolve over the years. For, for what reason or, or, or what benefit can a species have uh, to have male and female? I just... Uh, something has always troubled me with the, uh, the theory of evolution. Thank you very much for that question, Nick. Yeah, terrific question. Thank you, Nick. The answer, put simply, to avoiding uh, the complexities, is that if you have male and female, then you can have sex. And if you can have sex, 
then you can have genetic diversity. Mm. Now, what I mean by this is that if you have a male with a certain genetic makeup and you have a female with a certain genetic makeup, and in order to reproduce, those two have to mix their genes, what this enables you to have an opportunity to do is to mix good combinations of genes to give you the best genetic hand to play in the environment in which you find yourself. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is not true just of humans. Trees, plants, you know, crickets, insects, they're all having sex. And if, if they're having sex, then they are mixing genes. And if you mix genes up, because although, there are, um, although, although I have all the same genes that everyone else in the world does, the actual spelling of those genes is slightly different between individuals. The sequence of information encoded in the genes is, is slightly different. The recipe, if you like. So we're both making a fruitcake, but my fruitcake has slightly more currants in it than yours does. Mm -hmm. And that slight recipe change means that in a given environment, an individual might do better with a certain genetic makeup than others. And by, by having sex, you are giving the opportunity to introduce that diversity to produce new combinations of gene recipes and therefore have the greatest prospects for having success in the environment. The evidence that sex is useful is if you look at plants that reproduce without sex, and a good example of this is bananas, also potatoes are a good example of this, these plants clone themselves and they grow by the parent plant producing an offshoot, or in the case of a potato, a tuber, which is genetically identical to its parent. Now that's great if you want to produce enormous numbers of, of fruits or plants very, very quickly. That's fine. But the problem is, it doesn't give you the opportunity to defend yourself so well against a threat from a predator or a, a threat from, say, a fungus. Mm -hmm. And in the case of bananas, we've seen a big problem with bananas in recent years because uh, a disease called Panama disease, which is a fungal illness which attacks bananas, has wiped out certain species of banana historically and still a threat today. And the reason it's happening is because once the fungus evolves the way to surmount the defences of one banana plant, it now knows the secret to all banana plants. And it can spread very rapidly and invade and kill off every single species because they're all the same. Whereas if they're having sex and they're introducing diversity and change into the makeup of the plant, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity for new variants of the plant which don't have those same vulnerabilities to exist and those ones will be selected out because they won't be vulnerable to fungal attack and they will then help to form the basis of the next population of banana plants which are more resistant than their ancestors. Aha. Kevin in Thunderbell Park. Oh, Kevin, I'm not sure what's happening with that line. We'll pass him back, try to get him on a better line. Raymond in Centurion, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Hello, Raymond. Your question? Yeah, my question is I'm a track driver, you see. So when I'm parked on a parking day, mm -hmm. and then there's another driver reversing on my left or on my right, mm -hmm. I seem to notice that my track is moving. But only to find out it's, it's still uh, stationary. So what causes it? So the feeling of your vehicle moving when it's stationary? Yeah, when you, when another driver is working on my side or on my left hand, I see it seems that my truck is moving, but it's not moving. It's still stationary. Chris? So what could be the cause of that? Yes. Um, I, I can't hear the question very well. The line isn't good, but I think what you're saying is you spend a lot of time moving around, and then when you are not moving around in a vehicle, 
and you sit down quietly, you nonetheless feel like you're still moving around. And this is a phenomenon which was first described actually by Erasmus Darwin, who was, um, uh, the, I think, the uncle of Charles Darwin. We're just talking about evolution. Charles Darwin, of course, one of the forefathers of the whole idea of, of, of evolution by natural selection. Well, Erasmus Darwin conceived of or coined the phrase mal de debacquement. Mm -hmm. And this is literally the sensation of motion going on, ongoing movement in the absence of any movement. His experience was of getting off of boats, which is why he called it mal de debacquement, illness from disembarkation, because people who go on boat journeys, the boat's bobbing up and down, constant movement. You come onto the, to dry land, but you still feel like you're on a boat. These days, people tend to describe this phenomenon with air travel. When you go on a long air journey, you get used to the aeroplane bobbing up and down gently in the air. Mm -hmm. When you then set foot on, on the ground again, you think, am I still in the air? It feels like I'm still moving. We think that this is because the vestibular system, which is the part of the nervous system in your inner ear, which decodes the movement of your head and your body and produces the writing or compensating movements to make sure we maintain our balance, we think that this gets used to the fact that you're in constant motion when you're on a boat, when you're in an aeroplane, or in the case of Erasmus Darwin, also when you're on a carriage, a stagecoach pulled by horses bouncing up and down over rough country roads. And the nervous system compensates for that ongoing movement by generating a greater tolerance for those movements. When you are then stable and not moving because you've sat down in your armchair or something, the system needs to retune itself and turn off that compensation system. And in the course of, of getting used to being still again, it generates a few spurious signals making you think you're still in motion when you're not. But it is a well-known phenomenon and it's called mal de debacquement. We've got uh, Barnett in uh, Weinberg on the line. Barnett? Hi, Chris. I just want um, hi, um, hello to all. I just want to find out, we're speaking about evolution. Mm -hmm. We're speaking about, about animals evolving and based based their whole action on instinct, how did we evolve morality and, and, and ethics if we have also evolved? I just want to find that out. Yes, this is a, an interesting idea. Um, where where does the concept of me being nice to you come from? Is that wired into my genes or is it something we're taught? Mm -hmm. And this is the concept of something called a meme because there's there's two ways in which information can flow through a population. One is that I'm born with an innate behaviour, a tendency to do certain things a certain way. So birds, for example, don't have to be taught how to sing certain types of song. They know how to cheap the minute they're born. They can refine their song by listening to their parents, but they're born knowing how to sing. A cat knows how to do a meow, a dog mm -hmm. knows how to bark. A human knows how to make sounds, but we have to learn a language. The language is not genetically written into our genes. The language is in our culture, and we pick it up by listening to those around us. So why do we pass this on? Because it has a benefit to us. So therefore, certain things, these so-called memes, which are behaviours, which are in culture and in the environment, they are passed on generation to generation because they are beneficial to us. If you can read and write, which are memes, then you have more chances of getting a job, earning money, having more food, having more reproductive success mm -hmm. and having a better life. If you are nice to people, they will be nice to you. If you are nice to people and you have a framework in society where we look after each other, we protect each other, we have medicines, 
we have clean water, we have food on tap, so everyone can use that, mixing my metaphors there, then you actually are more likely to be successful. So there are two concepts here. One is the things you're born with that keep you alive as a, as a functioning physiological entity, mm -hmm. a body, and the other is the culture, the memes, which enrich your life and make your life more successful because they're there embedded in culture. But if we took a human baby, put it into the wild, it wouldn't grow up knowing how to speak because there would be no uh, cultural immersion in knowing how to speak or be nice and, and moralistic and things because it would have no access to that information and it's not genetic. Would that baby not mimic the behaviour of whichever group it spends the most time with? So if it ends up with, oh, I don't know, provided they don't harm the baby, if it ends up with a, a bunch of bears or would it not mimic that behaviour because that would be what is normal, what is society around them and they start because you know and that's how babies uh, apparently learn how to walk and talk as they see it around them and they mimic it would that not happen in the same way even without spoken language Yes, there would certainly be, we think, an element of mimicry. And there have been examples, I think, of human children being reared by, I think there's a case of maybe wild chimpanzees uh, or certainly some monkey species adopting a human baby that was lost uh, in, in the wilderness somewhere. I think that's true. But if anyone knows that it's, it's not, please let me know. And, and I think there is evidence that the baby did adopt a number of, of monkey-type or chimpanzee-type behaviours um, because it was, it was mimicking. We, we are programmed to be very good mimics and to learn by repetition and learn by uh, copying other people. So yes, that does happen. We've also got Henny in Pretoria on the line. Henny, good morning. Henny, hello. Okay, we've lost Henny there. Mark and Midrand. Hi, hi, Dukes. Hello, Mark. Uh, yes, I need to find out. Uh, normally a car uses a 12-volt battery. Uh, but in cases where you touch the cables of the car in the engine, mm -hmm. the shock you get is like from a 240-volt current. <laughs> how much does a car, um, how much current does it produce, and can that be fatal? Right, okay. Uh, there, are, there are things to consider here. I'm assuming that you are running a petrol car because uh, there are two different electrical circuits in a petrol engine. One is the low-tension 12-volt circuit, which is, comes off the battery, it's used to start the engine with the starter motor, it's also used to provide a, a buffer to run the headlights and things, and the heated rear windscreen when you need that, and, and it's recharged by another 12 volts or 13 and a half volts coming off the alternator when the engine is running. But to actually run the engine, you have spark plugs, and those spark plugs create a spark between two electrodes in the cylinder, just as the piston actually reaches before top dead centre, when mm -hmm. you've got this compressed mixture of fuel and, and gas in the cylinder. And that spark is created by a coil which you, you feed in 12 volts, but if you have a coil with a certain number of windings on it, and then you have another coil wrapped around that first coil with many, many times more windings on it, then you can increase the voltage in the secondary coil. And this high-tension circuit that runs the spark plugs, you need a high voltage to make the spark jump across the spark plug electrodes, that's at about 40,000 volts, or at least 20,000 volts, between 20 and 40,000. If you have a, a, a more expensive car with a higher compression, you need a higher voltage. And that's why it really hurts. It, it's not lethal, but it certainly is uncomfortable. Um, so don't grab the spark plugs in your running petrol engine car, <laughs> because you, you will have an, un, an unusual sensation running up your arm and out of your feet or wherever else you're touching the bodywork of the car. Mm -hmm. It's very uncomfortable, but it probably won't be lethal because it's very high voltage, very low current.
Thank you very much. That's the Naked Scientist for this week. Chris, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very much for having me. Great questions, everyone. See you soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.